Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership Podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership Podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey everyone, welcome to the show this week. Our guest is Phil Dark, who is the president at Providence World. Providence World is an organization that's leading the way in orphan care. And joining me this week to discuss and listen to the interview are my friends and fellow leaders, Kelsey Broom, Jake Sullivan, and Jonathan Bethay. How are y'all doing today? Good. How's it going? So good. I wanted to toss out the idea of excellence as we're getting started with this show today. When is a time in your lives when you have encountered excellence? Yeah, I I immediately think of my husband when I hear the word excellence because sometimes it's annoying how excellent he does things because I don't always want to be excellent, but I, I thought of him, it was a small example, but when we were preparing to launch a church, um, actually recently, um, he was in charge of making the backdrops for the worship set, and I kind of encouraged him to maybe put off finishing this project because it quickly approached 1 a.m. And he put his nose to the ground and he said, nope, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to get less sleep, but this needs to be done by tomorrow. And I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to do it well. And so we stayed up a whole lot later than that, but it got done and it, and it looked good. So I just, I thought of that immediately with excellence because he doesn't like to take shortcuts and it's, uh, it's very respectable. How about you, Jake? My probably most memorable encounter with excellence is a guy named Don Wildman, who was 75 or 80 at the time. I can never remember if it was Hawaii or California, because memories are weird like that. But he had a circuit, exercise circuit that he did. And it was about an hour. And this 80-year-old man just like put me through the ringer. And I don't know how <laughs> he was so fit at that age, but he made a comment that I remember and sort of motivated me after that, that people always tell you, you can be anything you want. They don't tell you what it means to actually want something though. Mm. There you go. Jonathan. Yeah, this was interesting because especially this topic of excellence, there's so many things that make somebody excellent or some work excellent. And so when I was thinking about this, my granddad, he came to mind specifically because he grew up in a time and went through things that he was not only excellent in those things, but they were especially difficult to be excellent in. So, for example, he went to medical school at Johns Hopkins. He fought in World War II. He lived in several different countries in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and Africa. He raised six boys, just a, a whole plethora of of things that he was very excellent in and ended up teaching in medical schools. And he actually ended up retiring 
from medicine in his early 90s and only passed away about three months ago, two months ago now, um, at the age of 99. And so every, every aspect or so many aspects of his life as I was growing up were just very visibly excellent Mm -hmm. and made a big impact on me, uh, made me want to, to pursue excellence in a number of different ways as well. So including ministry and academics, uh, in my family, in my entire family, uh, he's the only other one that graduated from my college with my major. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's just a lot of those types of things that really made me want to pursue excellence in life. Mm. Sounds like an incredible man. Yeah. Right on. Well, the reason I ask is because the first time I encountered Providence World, it really stuck out to me as an organization that cares about excellence. I first got to know about the organization by visiting their incubator program in Honduras called La Providencia. I was coming back from a trip. I, I, I taught in Honduras for three years, and I was coming back from a last trip before heading back to the States. We just stopped by briefly uh, to see some friends of friends, and what I saw there really impressed me. Since then, I've told friends multiple times, if I have a chance to ever do something internationally, I want to do something like what they're doing at Providence World. So uh, whenever I was uh, thinking about leaders to interview, I wanted to hear a little bit more about what it looks like to lead an organization that is a leader of organizations. And Phil Dark was that guy. Phil Dark is the president of Providence World Ministries, an organization that seeks to inspire and equip others to love orphaned and at-risk children and their communities with excellence. Phil lives in Folsom, California with his wife, Becca, and their five children. He received his JD from Vanderbilt University School of Law and his BA in Rhetoric and Communication from UC Davis. Before coming on board with Providence as Research and Development Director in October 2008, Phil worked as an attorney with different firms in Sacramento, California, and Atlanta, Georgia. In 2014, Phil co-authored the book, In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence, which is a much-needed and inspiring call for excellence in global orphan care and is a co-host of the Think Orphan podcast. Actually, Phil was able to share some of his insight on how to lead a podcast and how to organize and edit and things like that, which is really helpful to me as I am starting out as well. Without uh, any further ado, here is Phil. Phil, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Josh. I'm really looking forward to this. So if you would, introduce the listeners to the mission and priorities of Providence World Ministries. Yeah, so I mean, you said it in the in the intro. The the, uh, the mission, really, what we what we're all about with with Providence is to inspire and equip others to to love orphaned and uh, at risk children and their communities with excellence. And we, the way we see it, you know, we're a Christian organization. We see that as God as God loves them. We seek to do it as God loves them. These are all His children, and and we're really just wanting to do that ourselves at our community in Honduras, where we have uh, family based homes and we have a school. And, medical clinic and community development uh, projects there. We're also wanting to help others all around the world to, to be able to do that uh, same thing. And, you know, there's a whole lot to it. We don't have time to get into all of it today, but the, but the, the base of what we're about, it's to help others to love these children all around the world uh, with, with as much excellence as possible. And how was it that you got involved with Providence World Ministries in the first place? 
Yeah, again, uh, you know, way too long of a story for our time today. And, and you know, if you if you want to hear the full story, you can at uh, thinkorphan.com. There's a about page, and I go in much more than most people want to hear. It's about a half-hour interview about my background. But the short of it is I was an attorney, and I was looking for ways that I could just really use my legal skills for, for kingdom good, for, for, you know, common good around the world. And uh, I had no idea I was going to end up working with orphan and vulnerable children. I thought it might, you know, be working with – an organization called International Justice Mission. They fight against human trafficking. I thought it might have been, you know, working as a professor somewhere, doing some things like that. But it turned into running an organization that uh, that helps others to to love love these children. And and it it also, um, yeah. So it was just it was a it was a path that was a multi probably four or five years of just, you know, God doing different things in my life. But at the end of the day, it was really just knowing that. I could use my analytical skills. I could use my legal skills um, to be part of an organization that can think differently about how we can uh, kind of tackle a problem that has been a problem for, you know, as long as there's been human beings, these have been issues. And uh, now we're actually coming up with some really innovative issues. Uh, and so I actually came, originally came on board with with Providence as a research and development director, which is very odd position to have in an orphan care organization, which is one of the things that drew me to this organization. So before we hop into some of the specifics of what the ministry in Honduras looks like, from your experience, what would be some recommendations to budding leaders who are looking to grow and looking to position themselves for whatever's next? Yeah, I'll just say, you know, it doesn't always make sense. You know, um, it doesn't always follow the the norm and what in the way it's supposed to look. In fact, you know, often it doesn't. Because the fact of the matter is we're all wired differently. Every human being has unique gifts and talents. Every human being has different purposes. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of people that say here's kind of the normal path to whatever it is. If you're a lawyer, it's, you know, partnership track. If you're, you know, it, I mean, a lot of different organizations have that. But if you're a doctor, you go and you through your residency and you do this and you do this. You do this. When you're talking about work like the that we're talking about when you're talking about leadership it's it's anything but predictable and so i would say you know yeah learning is critical continually be learning and we'll talk more about that later to be humble and to have a a posture of humility to say you know like i don't have it all figured out i don't know what's going to come next i i'm you know every answer i ever get like in the work i do there's about 50 questions behind it and so when you come into it with a posture of I don't have it all figured out, that's not a shock. When you come into it thinking I kind of know what's going on and, you know, I wasn't an MBA coming into this. I had no executive leadership and I think that helped me out a lot. I had a friend of mine who actually he's one of my mentors and he runs a, uh, you know, he started a business school. And he said to me, he said, it's a good thing you didn't know what you were doing when you started because so much of this is unknown. And you didn't come into it thinking you had all the answers. And so that's another thing I kind of just alluded to. Get mentors. Get people who you trust, who know you, and get to know you as well as you know yourself in certain areas. And I actually interviewed Peter Greer on the podcast I get to host. And he, he talked about when he started the work, something that I tried to do as well. But he went one step further than I just talked about mentorship. He went and got about 10 different mentors in all kinds of different areas. He found every single area he needed help in. And he found someone ahead of him 10, 15 years who could come in and help him to understand these different things better and better. You know, and it's even kind of like what you did with this podcast. You called me and said, hey, you have advice on this podcast, right? Like, you know, you, you saw that I'm about 100 episodes ahead of you. 
and I'm still learning and I was able to impart some of what I've learned to you. And so I think that that is the key I have as far as advice. It's to, you know, never think you've arrived, continually be learning and continually be seeking other people, you know, who know more than you, who are smarter than you in certain areas, who can help you to grow. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that. So when I visited uh, your base in Honduras, La Providencia, I was incredibly impressed and I I wanted to know more. I wanted you to speak to a little bit about what is particularly unique about uh, La Providencia as a ministry to orphans, children, and the community at large. Well, La Providencia itself, really, the, the, the thing that sets it apart is the focus on the nuclear family, the mother and father in a home that is not a revolving door, you know, in the sense that when a child ages out, it's not really aging out. It's like my kids age out of my home. Um, they don't really age out, right? In, in, a, in an orphanage setting, when they turn 18, they're out. Whether it's time, whether they're ready, whether whatever. In my house, my daughter, my son goes to college if they go to college. If they don't, they'll stay in my home, go to junior college, or they'll just start a job somewhere. And they'll be under my roof until they're ready and then they can move out. And that's just a natural progress that, that happens. That's how it is at La Providencia as well. When the child turns 18, they're part of this family. And it's a mother and father who are a Honduran Christian married couple who raise these kids. In a lot of places that I've seen around the world, they say, oh, yeah, our place is just like that. Well, when you go and you dig a little deeper, they have, you know, they'll typically have just a single mother or or two, two women, widows, whatever. And don't hear what I'm not saying here, people out there. That, like, single moms can do amazing work, but there is always something missing if, if we have a single mother or a single father or you, know, you don't have one of those roles in the child's life. And that's something we firmly believe. That's something that science and you know, studies have, have borne out as well. And it's something that we say we want to address that by, by saying, by having to the extent we can, we find families who can come into these homes and raise these children as their own. And so when they get, turn 18, a child, you know, if they go to college, we don't replace that child in the home. Because when my daughter graduates and goes to college next year, and she is, we're not going to find a kid somewhere or ask the government, hey, can we have another kid to fill this spot? Now, we may foster someday. We may adopt someday. That's not part of the plan. And that's not typically what happens in a family. So we said at La Providencia, we're not going to do that either. Even though there's a spot there, even though we theoretically could do that, that does something in the mind of the child that says we're just another number here rather than we're a child of this mom and dad. And so when all the kids graduate out, when all the kids go to go to high school, go to college, I mean go to college or go start a job or whatever, then that family will move out and we'll bring a new family and we'll start over. But we're not going to have, the, again, a, a revolving door of, of children coming in. And so those are some of the things. It's a little bit, you know, it's more expensive. But we figure, you know what, we got to really try to give these kids what we feel every child needs. And that's a family that they can call their own. And so it's also for the parents. So the parents don't burn out. The parents actually see it as this is what we are committing to. Whereas if you had uh, that revolving door, the parents who at some point, necessarily, whether it's through death or them just getting too old and they can't do it anymore, they will leave. And that will leave some kids to have another abandonment because they necessarily had one abandonment if they're in that home. So does that make sense? Absolutely. So this focus on the nuclear family, is this something that is 
unique to Providence World Ministries? Is this a, a larger movement across the world? Are there things that Providence World is encouraging um, to help this approach to grow throughout orphan care in the world? Well, yeah. So in the context of orphanages, we're trying, we're really working with, you know, a lot of other organizations around the world to try to transition from institutional style where it's like kind of the little orphan adding model, the, the, the dormitory model, uh, the institutional model to family-based care. And so that, that can take the form of adoption, that can take the form of foster care, that can take the form of, of the residential care like I'm talking about that is a mom and a dad in the home caring for these kids and get as close to that nuclear family as possible um, and get as close to the permanent legal nuclear family as possible. In some settings, that's not possible. And so that's what actually In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence was about. It was about there's going to be some kids that fall through the cracks. There's going to be some kids that aren't able to be adopted, that don't have living family members, that don't have um, homes to go to. Now, the reality is that a lot of people don't know. 80% of children in orphanages around the world have living family members. So the first line of attack or the first line of defense, depending on how you want to see it, is to say, how can we get, you know, keep children from being put into orphanages if they have family members, get those 80% as much as possible back into their families and rehabilitate, restore, you know, and strengthen the families around the world so that they can keep their children. And then if they can't, for whatever reason, how can we create families in the context of whether it's adoption, foster care, or like we talked about at La Providencia, because there will be some times where there aren't enough adoptive families. There aren't enough foster families at any given time in any given place. So we need places rather than just saying, well, I guess the only option then is institution. Let's put them in a, a dormitory warehouse where they don't have family and kids flourish in families. Kids need families. That's one thing we have seen over and over again. And so what is that option? And that's what that is a global movement right now. It's really the kind of the deinstitutionalization movement. It's a big word that basically means how can we, you know, get kids out of institutions into families. That's really a movement that we're a part of and we're a part of that kind of spectrum. And the and the funny thing is is a lot of people will say, Well, you guys are an orphanage, so you guys aren't you know, you guys are just part of the problem. And, you know, I'll my my response used to be kind of defensive with that. And then the more I talked with people, the more people actually wanted to learn, the more they realized, no, you know, what you're doing is part of the solution. And we need to have more of it if, in fact, we're going to have – because there needs to be that middle ground be between now and, you know, shalom and the perfection in our world where there, you know, is, is no problem and no issue. We have this middle, long, 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 long middle ground and middle time where we have to accept that we live in a broken world that we aren't going to have perfect solutions to. So this is an imperfect, you know, solution to a problem that hopefully will be closer to that ideal than something that it could be. So from my understanding, most of your ministry right now is focused in Honduras, but what's the broader vision? It sounds like you're you're leading helping to lead a conversation and a, a global movement. What's the broader vision for Providence World beyond what's happening just in Honduras? Yeah, so, you know, I alluded to some of it. We had a, we had a book that we, we were able to put out with 15 co-authors from all over the world. Uh, we really want to be a facilitator of flourishing for others. We want to help be a collaboration hub, be a place where we can help with others to collaborate with, with people who can make them better give them information, whether it's through the podcast, whether it's through the book. We also, we, we just recently uh, did our first training seminar conference 
in Uganda and uh, Ethiopia. We did a couple different uh, trainings there. So we're going to actually be doing uh, hands-on, in-person training and equipping around the world. And we're working with a few organizations to be able to do that. So there's a few different ways that we're doing it. But at the core, at the base, what, we're, what we are about is, like I said, inspiring and equipping, helping others to be better. And so we do have this incubator model, and that's really what it is in Honduras, that we want to be able to use that as an example, not the model, not the perfect place, not the, something we can say to everyone, this is the way to do it, because as I said before, there's a bunch of different ways we can address this issue. And so we want to be an example. We want to be an incubator model where we can test out these theories that we have, knowing there's going to be a theory practice gap. And how can we bridge that gap? What can that, what can that look like? And so, and how can we help others to see that too in their particular context, in their particular setting, in their particular model that they have? How can they themselves get the closest to these things that we know every child needs? And that's really what In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence was about. There were nine prongs in family education and community integration and nutrition and medical dental care, and, you know, self-sustainability and national leadership and spiritual formation, all these different things that kids need. How can we make sure that that is in whatever setting they are in, whether that's adoption, whether that's foster, whether it's a biological family, whether that's the different model that they have of an orphanage. Uh, we like to say orphan care community because orphanage connotes so many different things that people have that's usually a negative connotation. So that's really what we are about as an organization and what we are wanting to do on the broader scale is really help people around the world to be able to consult with them, to be able to train them. I don't really like the way we're consulting because it's, it, it, I think it, that also has a lot of connotations, but really train and equip them to be able to do the best they possibly can do as they love the children that are in their midst. Have you found that people and organizations are eager to come to La Providencia to see what's happening and what their ministries can look like after being inspired by what y'all are doing down there? Yeah, absolutely. When they when they hear about it and when they find out about it, if to the extent they're able to to make the trip, because the, the one of the issues we have in orphan care is most of the people that really need and want the help uh, often can't afford it, and so they're often in parts of the world they're not able to make it to La Providencia to be able to see it. And the good the good news about that is they don't really need to go there. They can they we can learn. We can teach them um, from you know through technology. We can teach them. We can be able to go to them. Um, to the extent we're able and you know, we're in the process now of really, you know, looking to raise funds and to be able to to You know show the need to people who have the means to be able to whether it's send people to La Providencia, but my 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 uh, Preference on that is for them to go to people in their region That are doing it really really well and are close to what's going on in La Providencia because La Providencia is, you know, is not the only place in the world that's doing what we're doing place called New Hope Uganda in, in, uh, in Uganda, obviously, that, that was my main co-author on the book. They're very close to what we're doing at La Providencia. They have moms and dads in homes. There's places, you know, in different parts of the world that are doing things similar. And so I'd rather point them to a place closer to them that they can learn from. And then we can, you know, take that in their context. And really, that's where it's kind of a coaching to come alongside them. And, and again, it wouldn't be coaching by me. It would be me training up other uh, coaches to be able to do that in their specific region because there's things that, you know, I will never be and I will never be Ugandan. I will never be Honduran. I will never be Brazilian. I will, I'm an American and that's my background. That's who I am. And so that's such a critical part of the different work going on around the world is that cultural 
knowledge, that cultural context. I can learn about the culture, but I will never be fluent, fully fluent in that culture, even if I live there for decades, um, because of the, the, the mindset that I already have, um, that's embedded in me. And so that's something that I, again, that's where that posture of humility comes to, to know that I can only know so much and to trust that, that we can find other people to be able to really take it to that next level of, of equipping and uh, coaching what we can come in with the um, kind of expertise in certain areas, but then know our limits and be able to pass that off to somebody else. You've been with the ministry since 2008, first as a director, and now you're the president. What have been some of the most important areas of growth for you as a leader since joining Providence World? Well, I'd say, you know, the two things that I've been learning more than, I mean, I've learned so many different things, um, but the two that I've had to learn in the places that I've grown the most are, are in empathy and in listening. You know, to know that you can't really be a great leader until you know who you're leading. And that's where empathy comes in, to really understand the people I'm leading. And that, that's actually part of the reason I, I, I love doing the podcast is it allows me to practice empathy. It allows me to practice active listening. And those two things together, um, you know, they're part, they're part and parcel of each other. And so that's something that is not my, those, those are not my strengths. Empathy is not my strength. In fact, on Strength Finders, empathy is 33 out of 34 for me. So it's pretty darn low. Um, but that doesn't mean that I say, I don't need to worry about it. I'm just not empathetic. No, I can't do that because so much of a leader is empathy. And so I absolutely have, and I'm growing, continuing to grow, but especially the last few years, um, I'm, I'm still not great at it. It still isn't what comes naturally to me. Just ask my wife and my kids, they'll tell you. But it's something that I'm working on and I have been working on because then I can actually understand my people that I'm, you know, that are on my team in whatever I'm leading, whether it's a soccer team, whether it's people at La Providencia, whether it's people in other organizations. Um, whether it's my family, you know, I need to understand who they are. Um, and that's really something that we're teaching and training on is our personality assessments and organizational health and knowing the different personalities of different people helps so much in the empathy because you realize that people are wired totally different. That's something we know intuitively, especially as a people person. I know that intuitively. But to kind of get, you know, we use the DISC assessment and I've also tried, you know, really understood the Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and Strength Finders and all these different things. And as you understand all those things as they work together, you really understand, man, people are wired so differently. And if we try to speak to each other in our own language, so to speak, in our own personality, we're going to have so, so many communication breakdowns and so many conflicts that are very avoidable. And so those are some of the things in leadership that I've, that I've learned um, that if I, if I have empathy, if I really seek to understand the other uh, person in anything, in any interaction, and I really listen to them knowing who they are and knowing when they say a certain word, it, it may not mean what I mean by it, by saying the same thing, that helps so much, so much in my leadership. Are there any recommendations you'd give to leaders to really help to identify areas where it's important to focus on for growth? Find other leaders you admire, right? And if you know them, ask them to mentor you. 
that will teach you because I, I can't say what any particular leader needs to work on uh, without knowing that leader. I mean, we all can continually be understanding leadership better by reading different books, but I'd say that, you know, different people have different things to work on. The one thing I'd, I'd say that we can, and it goes back to the, to the empathy and, and, and listening, but it's, it's to the servant leadership. Um, when you are seeking to serve others rather than to dominate others, rather than just be authoritative over others, to remember what John Maxwell talks about with, you know, leadership is influence. You know, if you are able to influence others, if you are able to help others to understand uh, or to want to do what you want them to do rather than just tell them to do it and they're, they do it because they have to, um, you'll not only get people to do things longer and better, um, but you'll get people to do things with passion. You'll get people to do things and they'll be innovative and they'll do things better than you would have ever expected them to do it. I would say those are the things that come out of those mentor relationships, that come out of those relationships that that you find people who know you as well or better than you know yourself. They'll be able to help you understand what you need to do. And then there's a plethora of books on every one of these subjects, right? I mean, there's no shortage of books anywhere. There's no shortage of TED Talks. There's no shortage of different things. So that's where it comes into seeking out that information that's specific to what you need um, to be able to do. This is a 10,000 foot question. So feel free to give a 10,000 foot answer if you want to, but what insight do you have on building and maintaining organizational DNA for an organization like yours that reaches out to multiple cultures and has leaders from multiple cultures serving in it? So the key is, is to understand that there are some overarching best practices. There are some overarching values and uh, criteria for excellence that are, that, that go beyond culture because too often you're able to use culture as a, as an excuse to say, well, you know what, you know, name the country. We're just, we just don't do things that way. And if, even if that way, quote unquote, is clearly excellence, you know, so you fight, let's take something that's very easy financial accountability. Well, you know what? In X country, we don't, we just, you know, no one really is financially accountable. We just kind of wing it. And you'd say, well, you know what? That's just not acceptable. It's not an American thing. It's not a, you know, a UN thing. It's not a UNICEF thing. It's, it, this is just what is excellence is to make sure that you have accountability financially. And so to create that DNA to come up together with, you know, where everyone, you know, the, the different leaders, when we're talking about cross-cultural leadership in Honduras, we have all Honduran leadership. That's one of the other things that we didn't mention earlier. Uh, the leadership of La Providencia is, Hon is Honduran. And we have Americans there who are missionaries, they're school teachers, they're different things at La Providencia, different positions, but the, the director and the different le leadership positions are Honduran to create the culture, to create the DNA at La Providencia, it's a, it's a team effort. It's not something that we say, here's how you have to do it. It's to say, hey, here's how, you know, some of the ways that have worked. Here's some of the ways that we really believe are excellence. And you need to really determine within the context of your, of your culture, of the culture of, of Honduras, um, and of the culture that we've had uh, at La Providencia over the years, how can we really create a culture of excellence at La Providencia. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, it's really hard. It's really hard because you have language barriers. 
you have cultural issues. Um, and you do have some, you know, things that are, are a lot harder. I mean, it, it's not so much a laziness, it's just a different pace. And for us, very task-focused, task-centered society that we are in the U.S., it's hard sometimes for us to, to see that things go slower. And, you know, to understand when that's okay and to understand when it is lazy. And to not accept lazy, but to accept and to understand the different culture. Um, you know, the fact that when they say a wedding starts at 3, it doesn't really start till about 5.30 or 6, depending on when it is. You know, you don't go into that culture and say that's wrong. When you say it starts at three, you have to start at three. No, that's not something that is is critical to life. But, you know, if they aren't doing financial accountability, you say that's not okay. So I think that to create that DNA, though, it's got to be something that isn't something that's imposed on that cross culture. And this is in any culture, really. I mean, if you're in the U.S., if you come into the leadership of an organization as a board or as a president and you have different managers, you don't come in and say you have to do it this way unless you want people that are automatons and robots that are working, you know, just doing what you say rather than really being a part of the team. You come in and say, hey, you know what? Here's how we really believe we need to do it. Um, her, you know, here's what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? And how can we together come up with the solution so you ultimately make it everyone's idea? Well, Phil, thank you so much for sharing from your experience as president at Providence World and how Providence World is leading the way in orphan care. I like to end each interview with a few final questions that are meant to inspire us in our thinking and our actions as leaders. Are you ready? Sure. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? Well, I don't think it will surprise you to hear, to, to hear that my the quote that, I, that really comes to mind, the saying is, leaders are learners. You know, it used to be kind of leaders are readers, but I think that it, I've you know heard it change, and I've changed it a little bit to leaders are learners because there's so many different ways to learn nowadays. But continually be learning. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is... Humble, a listener, and a servant. What's a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? I would say, uh, how can I get better this week? And how can I help someone else to do the same? What book would you recommend to leaders? It's a book by Oswald Sandard called uh, Spiritual Leadership. It's one of the best books on leadership I've ever, ever read. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would it be? I would say on this, uh, this is, this is a hard one because there's so many different things you could be doing. Um, but I would say it's to learn something about someone or about something um, that you know absolutely that you disagree with. And finally, an arbitrary but insightful question. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge. I'm going to say it depends. <laughs> I know that's not what you want. But the reason I say that is because, and I thought a lot about this, I would say typically it'd be why. When you know what you want to do and what you're doing, you absolutely have to know why you're doing it. Um, but in things that are, you know, dreaming stage of whatever you are in life, why not is a critical question to ask and not be limited by the known of the world. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Before I let you go, where can people go to learn more about Providence World Ministries and the work that you're doing? Yeah, you can go to providenceworld.com 
And uh, that's where you can find everything about La Providencia, about Providence, the work we're doing, the different uh, trainings, things like that. And then thinkorphan.com is the podcast. Phil, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Yeah, thank you. I hope you found today's interview valuable. We'll be back on Friday to discuss the interview and share some of our key takeaways with you. If you want to share your own thoughts on what you heard today or leave other feedback for the show, email us at community at lifeasleadership.com. And if you think today's show could be helpful to someone else who cares about becoming a better leader, go ahead and share it with them. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist... It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon. And until then, keep living and leading well. <laughs>